1987, New York Times, there was an article about Henry Dempsey, who was a pilot of a 15-passenger Beechcraft 99 aircraft that was flying from Lewiston to Boston, Massachusetts. And after they had taken off and they were flying over a large body of water, there was some noise in the back of the plane. Dempsey decided to investigate it. He was the pilot, so he turns the, uh, the controls over to the co-pilot. He goes in from the cockpit into the cabin of the airplane about the time that the plane hits some turbulence. And the turbulence knocks him off balance, and he flies into the side of the plane where the door was. The door opens up, and Henry Dempsey, the pilot, is sucked out of the plane. You can imagine the panic that ensued. The co-pilot called a rescue team to come and to try to search for the body of Dempsey in the water over where he had been sucked out, but they could not find a body. The plane lands, and that's when they find Henry Dempsey. As he is sucked out of the airplane, he is able to grab the railing of the plane and to hang on at 4,000 feet going 190 miles per hour until that plane lands. And when the plane lands, his face is 1 foot 12 inches above the tarmac. And they say it took many, many minutes to pry his hands open from that railing. True story. But let's leave Henry Dempsey for just a couple of minutes and let's talk about us. Is it not true that we live in a world that tries to diminish the spiritual impact of Christians in the world? We live in that kind of a culture. We live in that kind of a time. And it's probably the same kind of time that disciples have always lived in. But in our particular case, there are all kinds of temptations out there. Sometimes it's to replace Christianity. It's, it's to take that Christian conservative politic and that replaces a robust discipleship where Christians live as light and salt in the community. And when that happens, Christ is not recognized. Or it might be that, that, that believers in Jesus are pressured and they succumb to that, that pressure, that temptation to conform and to assimilate into the culture where they look no different from those around them. And when that happens, Christ is not recognized. And that's why, friends, the New Testament encourages and talks about and instructs and, and commands over and over and over again for believers to keep a vice-like grip on their identity as disciples of Jesus. The call of the New Testament is for disciples to swim upstream. The call of the New Testament is for disciples to live a counterculture lifestyle. The call of the New Testament is for believers and followers of Jesus of Nazareth to cultivate a mindset of resident aliens. Now you know as well as I do that that's difficult at times because it seems like life comes at you at 4,000 feet and you're traveling 190 miles per hour. But that is precisely why we need to keep, keep that vice-like grip on our identity. Now Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, one of the most cosmopolitan places in the entire world. It was a place that people moved to during the first century to live a better life. It was cosmopolitan. It was a place where people were finding, uh, finding refuge from a harsh life out in, out in the countryside. But to that group of people, Paul says this. He says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of of his household. And he spends the entire book of, of Ephesians, that letter to the church in Ephesus, sort of explaining that when you become 
naturalized or non-foreign to God, you become a foreigner to the world. And the writer to the, the Hebrews, we don't know who that writer is, but in that 11th chapter he is writing about all of these different people that live by faith in the world. And he says in verse 13 that all of these people were still living by faith when they died, which means that they didn't succumb to the temptation to conform to the state religions or to the pagan religions that surrounded them. But they were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things that were promised, but they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were two things, that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Let's read that last verse together. Admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Let's say it again. Admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. You know what that verse is teaching us? Disciples of Jesus live as foreigners in the land where they have always resided. That's one of the reasons why we meet together every week. That's why we sing the hymns of faith. That's why we pray to God as our Father. That's why we open up a, a very ancient book that is precious as, more precious than diamonds to us, the Bible. It's why we come together to gather around a table. It is to be reminded that we have been called to live as, as, as foreigners in the land that we have always resided. And when we come together on the first day of the week, we remind each other of two facts. The first one is this. Disciples embrace their difference. We embrace our difference. We embrace the fact that there is a strangeness to us when it is compared to the way that the culture around us is living. Now, this is not always easy, as you know. There is that pressure to, to always conform, that, that pressure to, 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 to assimilate and to enculturate into the surrounding culture. You know, years ago when Calvin Coolidge was president of the United States, a long time ago, there were a group of people from his hometown that were invited to the White House to D.C. to come in to eat dinner with him. And they had never been to D.C. They had never been to the White House. They were a little intimidated by the fact that they were eating with the most powerful man, Calvin Coolidge, in the world. And they didn't really know what to do. So they, they were worried about it. And they, they decided among themselves, we're only going to do what we see the president do. And that way we shouldn't be embarrassed. And that worked out okay until it came time for coffee after the meal. And the coffee was being served, and President Coolidge took his coffee and poured it into a saucer, so everybody took their saucer, poured a little coffee into it. And then Coolidge grabbed the sugar and grabbed the cream, poured a little cream and sugar into his saucer and stirred it up. Everybody did the same. You can imagine this scene, right? Everybody watching the president and doing this. And then Coolidge puts his saucer down on the floor, and the cat comes over and drinks the coffee. You can imagine the embarrassment at the table as everybody's wondering, what in the world do I do with this now? What would you do? I guess you just drink it, right? Listen, nobody wants to appear strange. Nobody wants to wear a Laker jersey to a Spurs game. I mean, people that are sane, that is. No one wants to look strange. No one wants to look alien. Yet, Peter says, I urge you, church, as foreigners and exiles, abstain. Abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that He visits us. James, a brother of Jesus, in chapter 1, verse 27 says, You as believers and disciples of Jesus and those of you that are trying to practice what pure religion is all about, don't be polluted by the world. 
Peter is telling people who were living in the land that they had always lived and still spoke the same language that they had that they had spoken all their lives and ate the same food and practiced the same traditions to live as people who are residents of another land. Key word in that thought is to abstain from things that contradict and offset the presence of the kingdom of God in your life. In other words, don't be nationalized. Don't be nationalized to the values of the surrounding culture. You know, there's this, 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 this teaching of Christ and, 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 and primarily of Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians and in, in the book, uh, the letter to Titus, that talks about what you do when you separate from somebody, when you disfellowship from somebody. At the core of, of this practice of, of disfellowshipping a brother in Christ is this statement. When somebody is being disfellowshipped, you are saying that you are no longer worthy to wear the name of Jesus. What Peter is saying and what Paul is saying and what Christ taught is that there is a way that you live your life that is in accord with the kingdom of God. It is a kingdom value driven life, but it is going to be at odds and it's going to look strange from the people around you. But that's okay because you wear the name of Christ. Think about Abraham. Abraham has left his land and has gone to a land that God has shown him. And God says, I promise to give you and all of your, your descendants this land. And they're going, to be, they're going to number like the sand on the seashore. And it's a great piece of land. And Abraham lands there. And he lives there. And he lives there. And he lives there. But he never lives there as a resident. What does he live in? He lives in a tent all the days of his life. And what does he do in all of the places where he lives? He lives in a tent... And he builds an altar to God in order to remind himself that he is a stranger and a foreigner and an exile. And it's with Abraham in mind, I think, that Paul writes to the church in Philippi, another one of those places like Ephesus that's cosmopolitan, and the allure of the social life and the culture around them and the sophistication of the city is, is the temptation. And, and Paul writes to that church in Philippi. He says, you need to remember this. You have a citizenship, and it's not here. Your citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when you go from this place this, 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 this morning and, and out into the community this afternoon, and when you go to your workplaces and, and you go into your neighborhoods and you go shopping and, and, you, and you go to school and you go to college and you go to all of these different places of recreation and, 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 and different places around town, your life is the only Bible that some people are ever going to read. And your life has to be strange in the eyes of the community around you. Strange in the sense that it calls attention to itself because this is the second fact that we, we remind ourselves of every Sunday morning and it's we, we as disciples engage the world around us. There is a reason why disciples are called to live a different kind of a life, a kingdom kind of life. It's because when people see us, they need to see that there is a world to come. When people look at our lives... They need to see that there is a way that God has designed all human beings, not just to live and to relate to Him, but to relate to each other and to relate of the things of this world. That's why Christians do not quarantine them, themselves away and form ghettos and, and, and little conclaves of the faithful in places where the world will never see them. You know, I've talked to you a lot about uh, 
one of the first missionaries to China, a fellow by the name of Hudson Taylor. He, he lived during a time in which uh, uh, you know, there were lots of missionaries that were going into China, but the communist government began to throw the, the missionaries out. And Hudson Taylor was so effective in his work among the Chinese that the communist government even commissioned a, a writer, an author, to write a, sort of an anti-biography on the life of Hudson Taylor. And basically what they commissioned this guy to do, and were paying him large sums of money to do, was to take the facts of Hudson Taylor's life as a Christian missionary among their people and to distort them to the place that nobody would respect, nobody would think that, that Hudson Taylor's life was anything to be emulated, wasn't pointing to anything special. And this guy began to do the research and he began to write. And the more that he wrote and the more that he thought about the godly life and the saintly character of Hudson Taylor, the more he found it difficult to lie about this man. And finally, there came a day where he put, the story is told, he puts his pen down and he, he refuses to write that anti-biography of the life of Hudson Taylor, but on the flip side decides that he is going to become a Christ follower himself, even at the risk of losing his own life. Peter says, when you go out from your church services and out from your your fellowship meals together and your times of praise and Bible study and that great time of fellowship. When you go out into that cosmopolitan world with all of its, 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 its bait and all of its temptations and all of its sophistication to the human eye, go out and live such good lives among the pagans that Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that He visits us. My friends, God does not want a conformed church. What God wants is a counterculture church. And let me explain what I mean by counterculture. You know, we use that word a lot when we talk about our faith and the way that we go out into the world and we witness to the fact that we are changed individuals, radically revolutionized by the grace of, of Christ. When in fact, it's not that we are presenting a, a counterculture. What we're really doing, it's counterculture in the eyes of the community. It's counterculture in the eyes of, 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 of the world. It's, it's counterculture in the, in the eyes of the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist. But you know what we're really doing? It, we're when we go out and live those kinds of good lives that Peter is talking about, what we're doing is really showing what the culture should look like. With the way that the culture should look, with the way that people should relate to one another, with the, with the kind of peace that passes understanding that marks our lives and the inexpressible joy that, that, that is sort of the signature emotion of our life and love covering all of that. And whether or not we're white or brown or black or whatever language we might speak or how much money we have in the bank account or how many letters we have after our names that indicate a, a degree of academic training, whatever that might be, we are one. We are one in ways that are opposite from the world in which all of those things will split people apart and drive them away from each other. And so even though we talk about living a counterculture lifestyle, what we're doing is really living the culture the way that it's supposed to be. When God commissions man to go forth and to multiply and to be fruitful, He is telling them, wherever you go, there is to be this godly culture. And that's what we do. And that's why it's so wrong 
That's why it cuts across the grain of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is, is to take your Christian faith and to put it in a private domain, a manila folder, as it were, and to put it in a file someplace where nobody else can see it. Now, that is what the culture, that's what the world wants. They don't mind you having a Christian faith as long as you don't show it to anybody else, as long as you don't try to impress anybody else with the fact that you are driven by the cross of Jesus in your life and it's changed you into a person of love and patience and kindness and mercy. It has changed you into a child of God with all the benefits and all the blessings. But because of what it means to be a disciple and what it is that every writer in the New Testament calls us to live, what we do here is not separate from anything else that we do in all of life. This is the celebration for the way that we live every day. This is the recognition that there is, is a God who is our Father that blesses us as we bless His name in the community around us and honor Him in the way that we live our life. That's why we're called to be disciples. We, we not, we're, we're not just attesting to a truth that we believe to be true with all of, our, all of our life, but we attest with the fact, not only with our lips, that we, co we confess and we admit that yes, there is a God and there is a Christ in the Spirit and it's all true the way the Bible talks about it, but there is a truth that we attest to in the way that we live. We're pretty good sometimes at talking the talk. We're not that great when it comes to walking the walk, right? Those two are never separate in the life of a believer. And that's why Jesus does not want a church that is conformed, but a church that is counterculture. The only way that the world is going to know that it is broken is when it lines up with something that is more beautiful. Do you abstain? Do you live such a good life? Do you follow in the footsteps of Jesus? 1 John, those who say that they are in Him must walk as Jesus walked. When you walk in Jesus' steps, does the world see it in you? And the different values that you have and the different reactions that you have to the different circumstances that you encounter in this life and the different challenges that you are confronted with every day. Every time we leave this place, everywhere we go, with God's Word in our heart and His praise on our lips and His Spirit in us, strengthening us in the inner man, a better world is seen in us. In our marriages, in our families, in the way that we handle ourselves, in our singleness, our work ethic, and our ethic that comes in the you know that is displayed in the business world, in the way that we relate to our parents, in 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 the way that we do our schoolwork, in in the way that we are stewards of everything that God has given us, a better world is seen. And that's why Jesus in, in John chapter 17 is praying this, this beautiful prayer and he, and he says in verse 15, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. Three verses later he says, I, I'm praying that they be sent into the world. And he prays that God you'll protect all of these that are being sent into the world from the evil one. But the prayer is about the, us, the disciples going into the world so that God is known through our lives. And how is that done? Well, when we go over to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here this morning because it's, 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 it's too large of a, pack, uh, of, of a passage to unpack, but there are some things in here I want to give you to, to write down and, and, and to think about and meditate on the rest of the day and implement it in your life. He says, 
in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. He says, I want you to remember this. The end of all things is near. I mean, who knows how long the word near really means. But what Peter is basically trying to say is that the end of all things is near. That one day, life as we know it is going to end. Therefore, do not invest here. What is it that Jesus says over and over and over again? Don't store up your, your treasures. Don't store up your riches here on this planet where rust can eat it up and moth can eat it up and thieves can break in and destroy. But store up your treasure where? Say it, church. Heaven. He says be rich toward God. Don't invest here. And you can always tell when somebody's invested, right? You know, if you, you know, I hate to use kind of a football illustration here, but you know, if you, if you watch any game that the Oakland Raiders are playing, there is kind of this Raider nation, and it's, it's, it's kind of a crazy thing when you think about it because, you know, they, they, these people are, are, are sort of dressing up as, 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 as kind of space monsters and, 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 and orcs and, you know, all kind of manner of wicked being, and, and that's sort of the, the fan base of those that are really invested in the Raiders. But that's not all of them. You know, some people are not quite as invested in the Raiders as these folks are. And therefore, they can go and they can watch the game, and because they're not invested, they look different. They look different. And when you, you see that camera pan in on those Oakland Raider games, what you see is a group of people that look different from those of Raider Nation. And the reason is, they didn't invest same level. When, when Peter reminds us that the end is near, he's telling us. He's telling us, be rich toward God. He's telling us where to invest because the end is near here. Don't invest here. And when you don't invest here, it frees you up to do so many different kinds of things. The first one is to pray. You know, if everything is here, if, all, if the whole show is here, then you're really going to get after it with, your, with what you can do between the, you know, the strength of your two hands and the intellect between your two ears. But when you realize that the end of all things is near, that there is a world to come and that you're a part of it, that you are a citizen of heaven, the world to come, and you're eagerly waiting a Savior from there who is Jesus of Nazareth, then you have a whole different perspective on how life is lived here. It's lived in the presence of God's power and His grace and His might, and that frees you up to pray to Him. In fact, it makes you eager to pray to Him and to recognize Him as God. And you can love people. You can love people. And you can be hospitable to them. And not only be hospitable to them, but you can serve other people. Jesus Himself said, you know, you need to live your life in such a way that 
all of your good deeds and all of your good works and all of the things that you do in the name of, of God your Father is like this light that is set on a hill. Nobody in their right mind when there's darkness all about takes that light and puts a bushel over it so it hides. But they, they take that bushel off and it gives light to everybody. Do your good deeds in such a way that people give glory to God. When you're not invested here, it means that you're freed up from guilt and you're freed up from fear and you're freed up from greed. You can do those good deeds and not worry about getting the thanks because your eyes are elsewhere. But you want God to be glorified by everything that you do. You serve other people. You're gracious to other people. You speak the kingdom words, the words of God to people. And the end result is that God is praised. You know, it, it, I'm not trying to say that any of this is easy because it's not. The temptation is relentless. The pressure to conform is without end at times. And there are times when it seems like you personally are under the assault of, of, of all manner of evil in order to compromise your life and to give here or to give there or to give here, to give there or to, 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 to assimilate your life to the culture around you. You just you get so tired. That's why it's important that we come together as much as we can to encourage one another and to bless each other and to fellowship with one another and to admonish one another when that's needed, but to, to encourage each other as long as we have a day to encourage one another. And through the singing of songs together, to, to be drawn together and to be drawn to God as we, we praise and we praise and we praise. I don't know of a marriage where two people are constantly going, I love you, I love you, I love you, I think you're great, I think you're so beautiful, I love you, I love you, I love you, where both people are saying that, that they're not drawn closer together. And that marriage made to withstand anything that it faces because of the way that they have encouraged and praised and loved on one another. And when you're reminded of all of the greatness of the sacrifices that have been made for you, I mean, you're just, you just feel so compelled. You're overwhelmed. You're overwhelmed by the emotion of it all. To know that all we had to do was to obey God about the tree. And we'd live. And we didn't. And so we died. And then here comes along Jesus. And God says to him, if you obey me about the tree, then you'll get death. And in his obedience and in his love and in his mercy and in his sacrifice, his voluntary sacrifice for us, we see what it is that we are called to live and we, and we know that we can do it. We know we can do it. We follow in His footsteps. We are obedient to God. And if you haven't been as obedient, if the level of discipleship has not been that great in your life and you feel the need to be encouraged or instructed, we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front during the singing of our next song. We want you to come down and talk to them. And our church, our shepherds will pray for you and do whatever it takes to help heal your soul and to strengthen you and to strengthen your grip on the identity that you have as a disciple of Jesus. Or maybe, just maybe, you've never made that decision at all. You've never made that decision 
to join the family of, of God, that, to, to become a citizen of His kingdom, to, to become a, a member of His church, the body of Christ, by, by repenting of, of your sins and confessing that Jesus is Lord and having those sins washed away in baptism and dedicating your life to walking in His steps, the steps of Jesus for the rest of your life, being blessed, being blessed every day, regardless of how difficult life might be, to be blessed each day of your life. If that describes you this morning, then we're begging you to make that decision today. Why wait? Why wait? But the time now is to praise God. And if we can minister to you in any way, come down and talk to our shepherds. Let's stand and praise God together. Let us be faithful, faithful, faithful.